This is Sight for Sore Eyes. I'm Oyofe Adeshina. In the last episode, we heard a cautionary tale from Dr. Vandenaretti about a DEI-related conflict within her organization that significantly impacted her professional life. I was co-chair of our um, CME committee, our educational committee, and I attempted to implement DEI objectives for speaker selection. In all of this, I learned my CME co-chair mistakenly thought of me as his secretary or assistant as opposed to his co-chair. So this ultimately was an example of implicit gender bias and which was the underlying root cause of the conflict. We also learned from Dr. Lynn Gordon that these situations are not uncommon and that we need to be ready to address potential DEI-related conflict in our organizations and professional lives. Well, unfortunately, I've encountered a lot of different types of situations in the years of doing this kind of work because organizations are not perfect. If you've not listened to the previous episode, I recommend that you do. It gives context for the next part of our conversation in which we'll learn about the origins of Dr. Reddy's interest in DEI, the lessons she's learned from her cautionary tale, and what she proposes as potential solutions to prevent similar situations moving forward. We'll also hear Dr. Gordon's final thoughts about how to address DEI-related conflicts when they arise in our organizations and professional lives. This is Sight for Sore Eyes, where we discuss issues of diversity in ophthalmology with a minority perspective. These conversations may not always be comfortable, but they are necessary in order to provide context and perspective and form a foundation on which we can build a better paradigm. Perception is reality, but perspective is the key. Vandana, you were doing a DEI project and I have two questions for you. First question is where did the inspiration for that project come from outside of it being a project for the LDP? What was your inspiration for, for doing DEI work? So I think just looking back at my whole life, you know, it's always been an interest from a very young age, not necessarily speaking about myself, but I guess I, I would witness situations around me where people didn't have access to the same educational tools I may have had or someone else may have had. And I remember as far back as probably college or even medical school, like I know in medical school, I helped uh, found a program called Junior Medical League with the Boys and Girls Club, which exposed students in underserved areas around where I was in medical school to different careers in sciences not necessarily become a doctor, but just other kinds of vocations. So I guess I've always had an interest because I think access and exposure is really important and not everybody has that. But then looking at my career in ophthalmology and, you know, training and even in real life, I've seen patterns of gender harassment and discrimination that have impacted a lot of women in ophthalmology to the point where women don't even know what's happening a lot of times. And they feel unhappy in their jobs or they're switching jobs and they may not necessarily know what's going on. And I, I was probably one of those women and I didn't know how to label things and the language that was being used. If you're in academics, trying to, you know, apply for promotion or just various things. And I started learning the labels and I started seeing the patterns. And so I have seen it hold back so many people. 
And I think our field deserves to have those people. That diversity needs to be there. So I, I guess I've always had an interest. That interest was there even before all this stuff. And I wanted to see our programming diversify. You know, oftentimes I would go to these meetings and I would see people on stage that didn't reflect a lot of us in the audience. And I wanted to see that change. And so I showed interest in the CME planning and I was on the committee for a few years and I was vice chair and then I was co-chair. So it was really a passion of mine to see that programming grow and change because I felt like it was impacting people, particularly women were coming up to me saying, oh, it was nice to see a variety of people on stage, not just the same kind of demographics. It was young, old people from West Coast, East Coast. It was just diverse, you know, where they could learn different different things from different people. So I had people making comments like that that was on my feedback evaluations for the programming. So that's where my interest was. And I wanted to actually look to see what the programming was like 10 years ago and what it was now and see how it evolved and see if our efforts were making a difference. So that's what my project was initially. <laughs> and so then I wanted to look at our executive committee, our council, look at the demographics, you know, because it, it wasn't like a traditional voting in of people. It was people were being picked. So I kind of wanted to see if we could use this as a way to grow. Yeah. And you're continuing to take that interest, that proclivity for advocacy for others by telling this story. And the second thing I wanted to do is, is ask you how you responded to this and the way that you have brought this to attention through speaking at a national meeting and some of the talking points that you you brought up as lessons learned as ways to address situations like this can you speak to that yeah so there's really two avenues of addressing what happened right there's a legal avenue and then there's this non-legal avenue and that's the way I approach this, right? Sure, I have a case for discrimination and harassment, and I have that case, and I can go that route. Oftentimes, when you go that route, I don't feel like, I mean, this is a volunteer organization, we're all call, you know, colleagues in the same community. It's not like impacting some sort of income. I looked at it as what's the most productive and constructive. And in this situation, it was not taking that route and speaking about it. Because a lot of times when we go the legal route, there's no speak agreements, right? You can't talk about what happened. You can't discuss details. Well, we're not really going into a lot of details. I wanted to be able to speak about kind of the impact these events happen. And I wanted to also bring awareness that, hey, this stuff is still going on. And it may seem small, but it has a huge impact like in your career and the goals and things like that. I will say I did bring it to many people's attention, uh, a lot of people in leadership, and everybody agreed what happened was wrong, but I saw very few people wanting to sort of address it. It made them uncomfortable to address it. So I try to find avenues, like I know at uh, WIO, I spoke about it uh, on a DEI panel with other women. It just sort of just try to bring awareness. It's really all I, I wanted to do at this point. And what were you able to bring at the, that DEI panel, WIO? What did you talk about as, you know, ways to, to address the situation? Yeah, so a couple of things related to maybe a DEI rating system for organizations, workplaces, various things. Like, for example, let's just take the AEO. And there's a lot of societies. Maybe there can be some sort of survey or rating system that gets published. And if, if it looks low in an organization, 
think AO can kind of help out or reach out because these are ultimately reasons as to why membership is low in a lot in a lot of these societies. If if someone doesn't feel like they're going to be included or they're part of that culture that may have existed for a long time, they're not inclined to join. And I often hear like at mid-year forum, there are many cars being presented on low membership and no one had really looked at why there was just assumption that they're not interested or they're this generation's different. But really, it, it, I, I feel it boils down to inclusivity. CARS are council advisory recommendations, which are proposals made by state and subspecialty organizations to bring new ideas and member concerns to the attention of the American Academy of Ophthalmology's Board of Trustees. You know, that's just what it's like for anybody trying to be a part of a group. Do they feel like they have a place? Do they fit in? Can they make a difference? But really, the biggest thing I could think of is just kind of raising awareness, talking about things, collecting people's stories, publishing it, were really the things that I was thinking about. I couldn't agree more. You you can't fix what you don't know about, what you're not aware of. And it must be intentional. It must be on purpose. Like Dr. Gordon said, you have to understand that we all have biases and really seek to understand what they are and try to look outside the filter of those biases. When we encounter situations like these in our professional lives, in our our workplaces, in our personal lives. You know, one other thing I forgot to mention, we had discussed this about Code 18, about the ethics code and how it's limited to doctor-patient relationships. And one of the things that I, I thought that would be good for the academy is to expand this code 18 to include colleague-to-colleague behavior. Because as of now, it's not in their jurisdiction. So this could be something that any organization who supports DEI presents to AEO is to expand code 18. And from what I understand, Code 18 is relatively new. I think it was uh, implemented in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to have some accountability if there is any sort of discrimination between doctor and patient. As we wrap up our conversation, come to a close, a couple of final questions, and I want to start with you, Dr. Gordon. These things happen. As much as we don't want them to, they occur. Moving forward, though, as we try to be more intentional and and proactive about this, how do we prevent similar situations from occurring at organizational, professional levels from an individual standpoint? You know, the perpetrator versus the target. And then at an organizational level in, in handling and addressing these things when they occur. What are your thoughts on that? So regardless of what we do, conflicts will arise. I don't think that we can get rid of them. I wish we could, but we're human beings and we're all flawed. I think you have already addressed some of those aspects, being intentional, approaching each other with humility and without judgment, and then being open when someone tells you that something you said or did was hurtful so that you then understand, well, what was that I did? Not that the other person's overreacting or being too sensitive, 
but help me understand how my actions caused hurt to you so that I don't do it again, so that I learn from it. I don't know that we're going to ever get to that ideal place of how humans can communicate with each other, but I do think organizations have a responsibility when these types of situations occur to address them fairly, equitably, and with care. And we certainly have heard one side of the story here, which is a very compelling side. But taking someone out of positions without having a discussion doesn't make any sense to me and is worrisome because this isn't a court of law and everybody deserves due process and careful consideration. And so being intentional, being thoughtful, taking the time to understand what are the issues, bringing two people together with a mediator that can help them talk to each other and help them understand each other. I think we'd go a a really far way in terms of making our organizations and our workplaces better. Some wonderful points, wonderful points. And, And having somebody with objectivity, like you said at that last point, is is huge because we all have our emotional ties to certain points of view, certain individuals, certain ways you know we think and behave. But having somebody with a fresh outside view, not sort of caught up in the politics or the agenda of any one individual on either side would be good. But then I'm going to give you the last word. What are your final thoughts? I I really like the way that Dr. Gorenzis described how to handle these things. So I think that's the biggest thing. You know, there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be interpretations and people thinking differently about a situation. But at the end of the day, good leadership involves addressing conflict early, coming to an understanding and moving forward where there's growth, right? Organizations that have effective leadership can do that. And so that's what I'm hoping that we normalize these kinds of discussions. We normalize that, hey, conflicts happen. They're always going to happen in organizations. And it's our job as leaders to address the conflict and use it as a point of growth. That's our job as leaders. And that's what I want to kind of see more of. And Aside from all the other things that happen, I I think that if we can grasp that, and most leadership and organizations can get through anything with positive outcomes and not have this fear mindset, more of a growth mindset in these situations, the only way we're going to be able to address these things and change the culture. So I like that statement. And I'm going to say something that I've said before, and it may hit you a certain way when I first start Bear with me as I finish the thought. We all experience life. We all experience events, situations, and occurrences. And I will say something that nothing in and of itself that happens to us is good or bad. 
It is where you receive it, on which side of the situation you receive it, your perspective, and how you internalize that. Okay. Now, I'm not telling you what happened to you was good. What I'm telling you is that as you progress through life, we talked about leadership, being a leader who will be able to handle conflict, handle situations, be intentional about it. As you move through your life and have had this experience, you are the kind of leader that can take this experience and take it from a negative and make it into a positive. Because there's somebody you're going to meet down the line that has experienced something similar to this, that you will say, I was there. This is what happened. Life happens, but I'm going to help get you through this. And we're going to do the right thing by the situation for all parties involved. So if you take nothing away from this, I hope that's something that I could rest with you as we close our conversation. But I want to thank both of you for having this wonderful conversation with me. Not an easy conversation to have, not a comfortable one, but an important one. I think one that will really help a lot of folks out there deal with what they're experiencing maybe and maybe even have them be in a place where they can talk to somebody and, and get the help they need to, to move forward. So, when they're ready, that's Lynn Gordon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's not easy to experience and then speak openly about situations such as the cautionary tale discussed in these last two episodes. And I want to thank Drs. Reddy and Gordon for joining me to have this difficult but important conversation. It's also important to note that we've only heard one side of the story, but as told, it highlights the need to be vigilant and intentional about addressing DEI issues and conflicts that arise in our organizations and workplaces. The more we are aware that these situations do occur, the more we are able to purposefully apply the principles of humility, introspection, and honest dialogue towards conflict resolution. In this way, we can work towards making all parties involved whole, and the important lessons learned from these experiences will make us better in the long run. That's our episode for today. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Sight for Sore Eyes. Until then, take care and see you next time. As always, this episode was written, mixed, edited, and produced by yours truly. Sound and music for the podcast were sourced from pixabay.com.